Hello, welcome to another new episode of Full Time with Meg Linehan. Basically, over the course of the last week, the entire NWSL has exploded, so let's just get right into the news. And then U.S. Women's National Team Players Association Executive Director Becca Rue joins the show to help make sense of some of this recent news, plus take a look at the wider ecosystem of women's soccer here in the United States. So while I might attempt to take vacation days, that clearly does not stop the NWSL. So here we go. We're recording this Wednesday afternoon. There are still a few hours left in the day for news to happen, but hopefully it's current for you on Thursday morning. On Wednesday, my athletic soccer co-worker Paul Tenorio and I reported that the NWSL has found its 12th expansion team via the ownership group of Sacramento Republic FC. The one big remaining question is if the team will start play in 2021 or 22. Sources said 2021, but then according to others, there's still actually a chance that the league and team could push back to 2022. Either way, we're we're waiting on a big expansion draft with either two teams for the 2021 season or a big one for 2022. But either way, plenty of change is on the way for the NWSL. For more on this, the story's up on The Athletic, and if you want a direct link, it's in the show notes as well. Following last week's news that Sam Mews to Man City was official, Rose Lavelle's deal with the same team was also finally announced on Tuesday. As for Rose, she spoke with UK and US media on Wednesday morning before heading to England and addressed the fact that she does fully expect to be able to balance club soccer abroad with any potential call-ups for the US women's national team. Though as of right now, there's still no firm plans or dates at play, and there's not any firm quarantine guidelines for a potential return for camp in the United States. Here's Rose from that media availability on US soccer allowing her the freedom to consider Man City's offer. I obviously had let them know that um, I was thinking about going overseas and um, they were supportive of me either way. It was kind of my decision to make. If I stayed in NWSL, great. If I went over, um, great. Um, Obviously with camps, I'm, I'm available when, when needed. And um, if I get called up and um, I think Sam said it best, if I didn't, um, if I wasn't ready to take on that challenge, I wouldn't have. Um, signed with Man City, but all the conversations have been good. They um, were supportive of whatever whatever way I went and um, willing to kind of work with me on it. There was some last-minute drama before the official announcement of Lavelle's move to England. However, the Spirit traded her NWSL rights to OL Reign in exchange for the Reign's natural first-round draft pick in 2022, plus $100,000 in allocation money with even more on the line depending on Lavelle's future playing status in the NWSL. Plenty of other movement as well with players looking for meaningful training and games and with the expected plan from the NWSL really looking like a regional pod format, which means any games. First of all, that there won't be that many games compared to something like what MLS is attempting right now. But also these games aren't going to have the same meaning the same way a regular season would as well. We did get a bunch of announcements from North Carolina, however, doing their part to lock in the core of this team. Forward Jess McDonald signed a new deal. Forward Lynn Williams got a substantial three-year contract, which involves allocation money as well. Jeff Kasouf reported earlier this week that the team has also secured Dabinia in North Carolina via a multi-year deal as well, potentially the team's most valuable player. The Courage also signed their head coach, Paul Riley, to a new contract. Now, this isn't a complete list by any stretch, but here are some of the other recent moves from this week. The Orlando Pride announced a couple of moves for their players with Emily Sonnet heading to Sweden through November 2020. Jade Moore has been loaned to Atletico Madrid just in time for the Champions League. Her loan is set to expire in February, but the Pride do have the right to recall her if they need to. Jess Fishlock is heading to Reading FC. That's officially announced as of Wednesday by OL Reign. Another loan, and the team said that she will return for the start of the 2021 NWSL season. 
All right. So next up on the pod, we've got the executive director of the U.S. Women's National Team Players Association, Becca Roo. So before we get to today's interview with Becca Roo, we'll be right back after this quick break. So I know that you have your nice setup. I'm literally sitting on the floor of my New York City apartment because I have not figured out how I'm setting up my life now that I'm back home (laughs) for a podcast setup. So I'm just on a pillow on the floor in front of the bookshelves because I was like, that looks nice. But you have like a full, you know, adult nice setup right at the moment. Where where are you at right now? I am in my San Francisco apartment where I've been all except for two weeks since the game in Dallas on March 11th. Right. Yeah. So this is actually where I usually work, uh, but you, this is also my home, my bedroom. And so I've just shifted my desk in full transparency so that it looks like this very professional Zoom background, but got my it. bed is just on my left. Got <laughs> so. it, got it, yeah. No, it's uh, it has been really interesting. I mean, my last game was the, the game at Red Bull, right? Um, the game in Dallas was literally the night that sports really shut down. Like we went from having the inside out crest and that blowing up to like three hours later, the NBA being like, we're done here. See ya. So three hours. Yeah. It was during the game. That whole experience was absolutely surreal. Yeah. All right. So now we're, we're both, I, I was kind of in quarantine, like I left for Vermont right before sports shut down thinking, oh, we're, we're on vacation. Maybe some of the things that we're going to do are not going to happen, but like, we'll still go to Vermont and then come home. And then we just stayed in Vermont for five months because we were like, it's nice here and they're handling COVID very well. Um, what, what has your quarantine life been like beyond apparently a lot of Zooms? <laughs> a lot of Zooms. Uh, when I first got back from Dallas, I had my brother lives in Austria and was watching what he was going through in Vienna. And so one of my first things I did was buy a Peloton, which there's not a lot of space in my apartment, but I've wedged it between my couch and a window. Nice. And I've gotten really into making cocktails to counterbalance that more healthy activity. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Had a lot of walks, gotten really into podcasts actually. Are you a morning? More. <laughs> Go ahead. Are you a morning workout person or a, so is it like morning Peloton, evening cocktail? Is that the routine? It should be the routine. It, unfortunately, <laughs> I wake up to a lot of texts. And so while I might have the best of intentions to get straight into a workout, I don't. Right. right. So it happens. Yeah. Really, what I'm trying to beat is this afternoon sun, because that sun just beams right into where I put it. So right. Smart. keep that off. But Yeah. Yeah. No, I... We definitely do not have room for a Peloton. Also, I know like the backup for those has been intense. It would if if we did not live in a New York City apartment, I would absolutely consider it. But uh, I definitely when Peloton app had like that long free trial, I was like, I'm going to get in on this. Like my my parents in law had a very old treadmill and I was like, it does not matter that it is not a nice fancy one. I will use it to run using the Peloton app. And um, they have also a very ancient exercise bike which literally does not even tell you how fast you're going and i was like i'll just watch the scenic rides on the peloton app on my phone while just hey there you go cruising so yeah this is a bizarre time i feel maybe my best move of the year was actually investing in a peloton the day of shelter in place going place in the bay area which was the first place to do it in the country and and also thankfully we've been able to go outside the entire time so i feel very fortunate to be in san francisco in the bay it's been 
a good setup. Yeah. And yeah. very fortunate generally in life. So yeah. healthy, happy and right. Still doing my job. Yeah. Let's let's I do want to get into your job because I feel like, you know, it has been very amusing where um, as the whole Los Angeles thing was kind of coming to the front and reporting that out, like your name kept coming up a lot, uh, which was always very interesting because like, I mean, I've known you now for a while. I, I was trying to actually place where we met for the first time in person. I think it was maybe an NWSL draft, like my old boss, Evan from A&E, I think introduced us at a yeah. hotel bar before an NWSL draft one night, which is kind of like where things happen for the NWSL. Um, right. but you know, I don't know if as people are reading it, something is sticking out in their brain of saying, oh, the executive director of the U.S. Women's National Team PA is also kind of involved in this expansion process. So I do want to I want to get into what your actual role is. We will revisit the L.A. thing later because I know there are some stories there. But okay. can you can you explain what your day to day tasks are, maybe like what your actual like job responsibilities are for folks who might not know kind of the, the backside of the P.A.? Sure. I run a labor union. So I think we talk about my job in three different parts. The first is protect and it is running the labor union. So that's everything from the more well-known things around a collective bargaining agreement and the bargaining that goes around that and enforcing it. But it's also simply running a membership organization. We have currently 26 voting members. We have three officers. I report directly to Becky Sauerbrunn, Kelly O'Hara, Sam Uris. They are my bosses. And feel pretty fortunate to be able to say that, but they, I am in charge of executing the membership's vision for what they want their players association to be. I've been in this role full-time for three and a half years. I am the first person to be full-time in this role, the first woman to hold this role, and feel very fortunate that the players have made the investment to have somebody think about the future of women's football and their role in it over on a full-time basis. So I think over the last three and a half years, we've really transformed our organization. And so beyond just that first core role of being a labor union, we have our second part of our vision, which is impact. And that's where we do a lot around the global game. And that can be pretty broad. That's probably where I would put the LA activities <laughs> and grow the global game. Right. And even reconnecting with our alumni, we held our first ever alumni reunion together with US Soccer in April of 2019. And all of our work around pay equity and our partnership with Time's Up and some of our upcoming activities around social justice and racial justice. So that's one. And then the third is really enhance. It's um, growing the commercial side of things. So we've really put a lot into our licensing endeavors and creating new merchandise that features players' likenesses. Okay, so before U.S. Women's National Team Pay, where, where, what were you doing in your life before women's soccer, I think, kind of took over yeah. most of your waking moments, question mark? Yes. Uh, I was a consultant at McKinsey. Prior to that, I got my JD MBA at Kellogg and Northwestern. And I never, this is the job I never knew I wanted, like the dream job I never knew I wanted, because it really is the culmination of a lot of my life experiences and passions. I was an athlete at Te University of Texas at Austin. I did crew there, but I also worked for the athletic department all four years and ran events um, actually for women's soccer. And it just, my mom was on the first Stanford women's soccer team I grew up playing. It was always a kind of first love. But then I helped run a sports startup in Dubai. I worked for a media company selling sponsorship and putting together content. 
and then have the law background together with the MBA. So get to draw on a lot of different experiences and expertise that I never thought I would be able to pull all together in one job. Yeah, as someone who has pretended to, well, I haven't pretended, I've been very upfront about the fact that I do not have a law degree. Like it does, there's a lot of law. <laughs> and obviously for your, your role, it is it is extremely important, but it is kind of fun to see, you know, like everybody's always just kind of like, oh, just soccer, right? Like you're just talking about, and it's like, no, there's business, there's law, like there's so much stuff that impacts the day-to-day of the sport, so... There is, and I'm also really thankful to always be able to say, I am not a lawyer. I have a JD. <laughs> I know enough to know when I need to get our great legal team involved. Right, right. All right. So so that's your role. Now let's let's talk about how maybe you interact a little bit with, you know, obviously you're talking with US soccer a lot. That's kind of one of your primary relationships, but also in thinking maybe about the LA stuff, you also have this existing relationship with the NWSL Players Association, right? There's your counterpart there, plus the NWSL itself. So, you know, I I feel like ever since the start of this league, there is kind of this discussion of how do the U.S. national team players fit in to this league, right? Like they have their own system. There is kind of the, the input is slightly different for the way that this works. So how does that relationship actually play out for your role with the PA? It is a very unconventional setup. So we, our employer or this labor union is with U.S. soccer and U.S. soccer has, is the third party employer for U.S. and national team players who are designated as allocated into the NWSL uh, for that, those club duties. And Mm -hmm. so we work with U.S. soccer. We have a CBA that governs those activities that allocated players have in the NWSL. We enforce our standards around the NWSL. And so because of that, in 2017, especially, and even in 2018, there was no National Women's Soccer League Players Association at that time. And so we played a lot of that role and we couldn't bargain on behalf of all NWSL players, but those standards that the players really did emphasize in the last round of bargaining, hopefully were something that would create a better experience for all players. And so I think with the NWSL directly, I have conversations. I also spent a good portion of 2017 and 2018 and 2019 when we could still travel around and go watch live sporting events, going to games. And I really missed that because it was an opportunity to get to know league staff, team staff, team ownership, and the broadcast crew. You know, <laughs> players are busy whenever I'm in town usually. And so I really miss hanging out with Michael Cohen and yeah. Dallin and Ben and Allie and before and after games. So that was something that was my life leading into the NWSLPA's existence. And then since the NWSLPA was stood up by Yael and Megan Burke, I'm here as a resource. We collaborate a lot behind the scenes. Um, the US Women's National Team PA has donated money. We've helped raise additional money. And for all of you fans, if you want to know how to support women's soccer, please go to their website, hit that donate button, buy their merch. But they as I think the relationship has evolved and especially with Lisa Baird coming on in some ways, I think we're starting to hit that new transition phase where the NWSL and the NWSL PA are graduating and I'm almost working my way out of a job. And, and as it relates to the NWSL, the U.S. Women's National Team PA in the future will not have a role. And I think that's a day we can all celebrate the strength of the NWSL and the NWSL Players Association. Right. So the NWSL has had itself a week, right? 
Um, a lot of news happening. We've got some expansion stuff. There's a lot of player movement, though, and I, I do think that this is a, a good opportunity for me to ask you a couple questions about that. Obviously, you know, we've got a couple players absolutely announced and all set. There's some new, you know, like just recently reports of Kristen Press, Tobin Heath potentially going abroad as well. But, you know, multiple U.S. women's national team players plus NWSL players. Where... Let's actually get just like the logistical question out of the way first. Obviously, this was in theory supposed to be an Olympic season, right? So that is now pushed down the line. That allows players to consider options now. What is the official, as someone who <laughs> I've read the CBA multiple times, I feel like I have a good handle on it. But for those of those of whom have not had the joy of trying to parse the CBA multiple times in a day, where is the official line in terms of, players being able to go abroad? I think one misconception is that players have always been able to go abroad under this new CBA. It was just, how do we structure it such that maybe there are more incentives for them to remain in the National Women's Soccer League during this term of our CBA? In the past CBA, there actually was a restriction. There was a max of some number of years. But here it was more of a how many players can remain on contract and be abroad. And so COVID has definitely altered even how we're handling some of the collective bargaining agreement. It was, there was a restriction on the number of contracted players that could be abroad while there was an NWSL regular season going on. Right. And, and this year there was supposed to be zero, but we don't actually have a regular season going on. And as the CBA has progressed through the term, some of those incentives for players to stay have been weakened because the number of contracts that U.S. soccer has to have offered to players has gone down from a minimum of 20 to a minimum of 17 today and next year it'll be 16. And so this year or next year, there's only three players who are on contract that are supposed to be abroad and that's on contract for their national team duties. And I realize I'm getting even more into some technical <laughs> stuff, but here's like the basics are players can go abroad. There's some trade-offs they have to take. And I would say collectively players are in U.S. and national team players are extremely committed to the NWSL and growing the NWSL. And we also have to acknowledge that there are players that are needing to focus on their, what they need and where they are in their own career. And just because some players are now going overseas doesn't mean they're not committed to the NWSL. I think the NWSL is unfortunately a, a victim of what this entire country in the U.S. is facing, where we just have not contained or managed COVID-19 well. And for soccer players to be soccer players, they need to play soccer. And right now, Europe has handled it much better. And so they offer an opportunity for players to continue to play and play in a consistent training environment and get games. Right. And, so each individual player will make their own individual choice. And I personally think it's extremely unfair to then judge or question what type of commitment national team players have overall to the end of yourself. Right. I think there's also, you know, there is kind of taking that step back of not just allowing players to have that kind of individual right to figure out what's best for them in their career, which I, I completely agree with. But also I think that there is kind of this, you know, commitment to figuring out what comes next, right? Like there's always been a drive to make things bigger and better. And that comes on both the U.S. women's national team front and on the domestic side. So where are you seeing, you know, I feel like 
we're getting all this good news out of NWSL in terms of the Challenge Cup going well, sponsorships, uh, TV deals, getting games on big CBS, those those games on big CBS, getting really good ratings. Where are the big opportunities from your perspective, like next three to five years, like let's go long term for a minute. What comes next? What comes next from a player perspective? I think before we go to the future, I just want to acknowledge where we are right now. We should all be so happy, proud, thankful for how far the NWSL has come in its ninth year. It's a true testament to the ownership group, to the teams, to the players, and Lisa Barrett, especially in her staff, that we have so much good news coming out of the NWSL in the midst of a global pandemic. I think the next steps, though, truly are going to be how do we look to the future? It's not a trend of player movement and the U.S. women's national team going abroad. I think that's just a reality of the times. But if we want to attract and retain talent in the future outside of a pandemic, it's going to require a strategic plan that gives cast a vision that keeps players here and keeps them believing it. We've got to take off the training wheels. There's a lot more competition across leagues across the world. And unlike other sports where U.S. really can be the premier league um soccer is global and there's a lot of investment being made which is great like i don't that is a good thing and for the ownership group though to attract and retain the best players i think they have to do a few things they have to adjust the schedule um i think that's a cost neutral thing mostly and and make it so that there's a at least a nine-month season, that there is a regular season that consists of home and away and different competitions. And honestly, that the lease periods are honored both ways, both ways between club and country. If you look at 2019, US women's national team players missed 12 games. And that was because of US soccer's pulling them out, but also because of the schedule running through the World Cup. So if you look at other players that participated in the World Cup, they missed six games. And we need to figure out something where players can be fully committed to their national team duties and fully committed to their club duties and they're not overlapping as much. And it looks probably like a more traditional schedule, not so much in terms of calendar. I think we'll always get, stick with our calendar, but it's, can we create new competitions? Maybe the Challenge Cup is actually run annually in parallel with whatever um, international tournament is going to happen. The next five summers are actually going to have an interruption. Let's not look at it as an interruption, but as an opportunity to showcase our players who are not participating in that tournament, both domestic and international players. And I think the Challenge Cup was a huge, fun format, successful. Let's make an annual. So that's one thing, schedule. The rest is going to cost money. I think so many people focus on the compensation part of it and housing and things that players do care about, but it really is going to come down to other factors like training facilities, the quality of the coaching, the quality of the training environment, sports science, medical care, that matters. And that is one area where I think if you look at what Louisville's doing and their investment into a training facility is excellent. It's going to be a necessary level of investment to compete with some of the larger clubs who frankly have that advantage already um, going forward. Right. Right. Do you think there's anything to, to, you know, obviously the NWSLPA, U.S. Women's National Team has a CBA in place, right? The NWSL Players Association is recognized mm-hmm. as the union, but there's not, you know, these are like standard agreement contract things, right? It's not driven by a CBA. Is there a potential, 
Do you think free agency could be something that we need to look at? I know Lisa, when she was on the pod, was kind of saying, we've got to have some of these bigger roster things. You know, yes, introduction of allocation money is a good thing, right? But like, in terms of like where the league could be with all of the kind of roster infrastructure compared to an MLS and not saying like we need to duplicate every single thing from a men's league, but, you know, having having some more freedom of movement feels like it could not be a bad thing. No, I think it would be a great thing. And I should have mentioned that as a starting point. I think that is, <laughs> yes, the NWCLPA does not have a CBA. At some point they will. And currently right now we negotiate an MOU with U.S. Soccer for Challenge Cup. They want to negotiate one with the NWSL for the Challenge Cup. But I think, yes, that will be a, a point. I don't know where what their thought is on, on free agency. To me, that is a massive, Lisa is correct. You have to look at roster rules. Free agency is going to be a part of it. If you look at any of the players, whether U.S. and national team or NWSL players who are going abroad, they're getting to choose where they go play. And that is a factor that is different than other sports in the U.S. At some point, I think the draft will go away and there'll be different ways of keeping parity within the league. But that, that's something that is a really fun intellectual problem to try to solve. And yeah. I think there'll be some work that will have to be done on that over the next 18, year, 18 months. Right. Yeah. This is not necessarily like here's a here's an entire new league structure by 2021. This is a a project of, you know, so let's talk maybe a little bit longer term. Let's talk bigger picture. I know I think one of the words that probably gets texted back and forth the most between the two of us is the word ecosystem. I think we both really like talking about the wider ecosystem, but you know, obviously there is this relationship now between the U.S. Women's National Team and the NWSL. It is going to change in some format. It was already, in theory, we were supposed to be past kind of this, you know, new operation system, and it got kind of kicked down the line a little bit. But how, as, as someone, you know, I've been behind the scenes, I've been inside the machine mm-hmm. to some extent, right? There's all this work that goes behind the scenes that does not always see the light of day. There also... And, and this is something that I've spoken about with Lisa too, right? Like you've got a lot of competing interests maybe that all need to get seared into like one productive channel. So how do you, how are these conversations? Like what are all of these competing factors maybe who are all of these conversations happening? Like how do we get the ecosystem going in the right direction in a way where no one just from my own experience on the inside, like sometimes people feel threatened, even if everyone is on the same Mm -hmm. side, right? Like how do you get everyone working collaboratively in a way that ends up being productive for the growth of, of women's soccer? First, I'll just say it's so much more fun to be collaborative rather than combative. And while I think you're right that there are people that have different agendas across the ecosystem, whether it's players, agents, fans, federations, leagues really we all want the same thing at the end of the day and so i have really had a lot of fun at finding people in both formal and informal roles of power and influence that can see what a potential future looks like what what is the art of the possible and are not so contained by well this is the way we've always done it or this is the way the men do it and that's the way it has to be and so it is fun and also a lot of challenging aspects of that because people don't like change very much. And so 
how do you overcome that change? It takes a lot of persistence, tenacity to overcome the inertia of the past and all of the sexism, misogyny, racism, classism that comes along with that. And so he asked, how do you do it within the ecosystem? You have to find people that are willing to look at the world in a new way and put in the time and effort to actually realize that new vision. Right. I do. I Change is a really interesting thing because, I mean, when I think about even when I got into women's soccer versus where we are now, right? Like, A, very night and day. Um, B, the whole concept that we would do things the way that we've always done them or maybe just duplicate the efforts of, like, why not just do what MLS has done, right? That's a really interesting concept to me just in terms of I feel like women's soccer is just constantly changing like and and I have always been a big fan of we have to celebrate what's working well and we have to like celebrate the wins too because frequently the wider world is not necessarily celebrating those wins in quite the same you know attention maybe the world cups all that kind of stuff but like in terms of NWSL right like the NWSL needs to own it its wins I think the U.S. Players Association obviously like needs to own its wins but why would we ever just kind of settle for where women's soccer gets boxed into, right? But also it just, like, it's constantly changing and work constantly needs to be done. And yet people are, in some ways, maybe resistant to that constant work needing to happen. Yes, they are. And (laughs) resistant is a good word. Sometimes because people are threatened and see the world as a zero-sum game, which is just really a very uninspiring, exhausting way to look at the world. And so... Thankfully, I work for people that are, the players are quite visionary themselves. Like they have a vision for what the future can hold. And I think that comes from current players today grew up watching the 96 gold medal match and the 1999 World Cup and have formed relationships both on their own and through some of the PA activities with former players. And so players is like in my world where I start. And then you also go to fans who show up and are loud on social media and go to games and watch TV. And then you also have agents who are working hard for players behind the scenes and agents often get a bad rep, but they're so important within the system. And so as I look at how we evolve the overall ecosystem, what are the things that we don't love about the agent incentive and fee structures on the men's side and how do we adjust those so that we have better alignment for what is best for players and leagues on the women's game. I think there's a lot of lessons you can learn. And as you go down the road, I have the benefit of working with a lot of players associations, both women's side. So Brooke and Yael at the NWSL, PA, Terry Jackson at the WNBA Players Association, and then also men's sports. You know, in my tenure in the last three and a half years, Dean Marie Smith at the NFLPA is one, has been one of our greatest advocates and fans, and Tony Clark at the MLBPA, and then also Bob Foose over at MLSPA and Mark Levenstein within um, the men's national team PA. So very fortunate to have some people in different capacities that I can draw upon. Okay, how did you guys do this? And then you move over into the federations and FIFPRO and FIFA. I've had the benefit of being on the task force that was looking at the international match calendar for women with FIFA and got to know Sarai through that process. And I think overall in women's football, there are people that have really good intentions and are actually trying really hard to do the right thing. 
in a very under-resourced reality and underpaid right. reality. And I know that right. you, like I've only been here for three and a half years really digging in and maybe a year prior to that. Meg, you've been around longer. But even in my three and a half years, we've had three NWSL commissioners, a ton of staff turnover. We've had at US Soccer, three presidents, two CEOs. I think we're now on our fourth chief legal officer since I started. And if you look at what is constant there and trying to drive change, it really miraculously somehow labor has been around the longest and the players that we represent. And I am, I love that part of the job and look forward to working with more and more people, including Lisa Baird. Um, I think the other one other aspect to mention is just the broadcast partners and the commercial partners that we have. NWSL has had three broadcast partners since I started <laughs> too. So yeah. getting to know all of them and understanding what is what is their incentives. And this is where my unique background probably comes in is I'm not a pure labor person. I have a lot of business background. So I try to tr achieve optimal solutions. We try to achieve optimal solutions. And to do that, you really need to understand what's driving all sides. Yeah. I think also, I mean, within the going down that list of the turnover in commissioners and the turnover in U.S. soccer presidents and the turnover, you know, it is really interesting, I think, even to see some of the changes that have happened since, like, I, I remember the days of Sunil Gulati, right? Like, being around for a long period of time and being able to, like, both have a vision and also have the time to maybe actually have that vision yeah. come true. Because, like, you're around to actually, like, get people bought in to your vision and have it happen. And whereas for the NWSL, we have never really had any sort of longevity in terms of, especially like compared to a Sunil, right? Where people have been around for multiple years in the gig. But the, I think the interesting thing about NWSL is how quickly people also bought in to Lisa Baird wow. as a leader. So how quickly she might actually get that kind of like, almost like coalition building, right? Like this is this is again like kind of the way that you organize labor where you get to like bring people together and build something. And my hat's off to Lisa for her second day to jump on the job is March 11th when we referenced the Dallas game and all of sports world shut down. She's been in crisis mode and the challenge cup was a huge success and a huge testament to her and her staff and everybody else around the league and Brooke and Yael especially as well. So Yes, I think that there is an opportunity for her coming out of the Challenge Cup, and we're still trying to do games this fall. There's going to be fires to fight and things to do, but I do think that one silver potential silver lining of COVID-19 is there's a chance to not just have to always build the plane while you're flying it and actually put together not only the three to five year plan we referenced earlier and what does some of that look like for what players want, but really beyond that. When I talk about the potential of women's soccer in the US, it's over the next decade. I would really say through 2031 is you invest now and that's when you're gonna realize the benefit of your investment because we have 2026 World Cup in North America. We have 2028 LA Olympics. I hope by 2031, we've hosted a World Cup. And that's exciting. Like that's, that's kind of the long-term strategic thinking that needs to happen and it's not being proactive. And so you referenced Sunil. Sunil was around the game for two, three decades. And 
now there's been a lot of turnover, but hopefully things are starting to settle in and we'll have a chance to cast the vision and actually realize it. And not all of us are patient. I mean, I certainly thought certain things were going to be done faster than they, they have been, but then you get moments of real joy, at least for me and seeing that, Oh wait, some of this is, my work has been validated. And for me, the most recent moment was LA coming in. My right. they, Their entry into the NWSL validated a lot of the work that I personally worked on, the players have worked on, and all the various parties within the ecosystem that we referenced have collectively been working on. Okay, so let's talk about LA. I think that's a perfect, perfect setup for, you know, as I'm talking to everyone, everyone has like a Becca Rue story, which personally delights me because I do feel like I have a sense of where you're at. I mean, not necessarily like every given moment or anything, but like I know kind of that you have kind of contacts throughout this entire ecosystem, as we like to say. So, you know, there were there were stories from from Julie. Uh, Natalie Portman is out here saying, OK, well, I got lunch with Becca Rue and, and Alex Morgan, and that was a kind of a a moment for her thinking, okay, this is possible. So uh, let's get your version of the story and and maybe it's the short version of the story, but like where, where are all of these contact points for you as LA is thinking about, okay, we want to come into the NWSL. I will verify that it didn't start about them coming into the NWSL. I mean, we were friends and Kara Dortmund is a, a friend and she introduced me to Natalie and really then it was about, how do we do some gender equity work together? And then it got formalized with Time's Up. We hosted the big event around the alumni reunion in April 2019 at Bank of California. And Natalie invited, and that was simply started as Natalie's inviting her friends to come watch the team play and support them on the field. And from there, it just evolved. Kara came over to three different games in France. She joined a couple extra spontaneously and included her joining my family and friends on a champagne country bike trip through the vineyards and over the hills. And that was, it really does start with friendship and shared experiences. And, and I think through all of that, they became huge believers. And Natalie was the catalyst of let's bring a team to LA. And so from there it was, okay, well, let me show you what you can build. And so the US National Team Players Association bought tickets for them to El Trafico. I posted them and said, this is what you can build. And now I look at this rivalry, look at what even LAFC has built in a couple of years, short time. And then it was introducing them to Merritt and Mike Golub up in Portland, accompanying them on their first trip up there. And after that, they were off the races and doing their own diligence. But they are people that really do believe in what the possibilities can be and are willing to do it in a different way and flip the narrative and it's not just flipping the narrative for women's soccer. It's like all of women's sports. It's women generally. And they see it as something that's beyond sport. And it's it's just so fun to actually see it come to life. And I have no doubt that they are going to do great things in, within this league and also elevate everybody else and all of the other teams within the league as well. Right. I, I do. I, I feel like we could have an entire other podcast about adventures in France during the World Cup. I'm guessing that was that was in Reims. Which it was, was technically right yeah. the morning after the Spain game. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. That that checks out. Uh, that was also, I think, probably before like 
the worst of the heat in France? Oh, no, girl. Was it was it? still real hot. <laughs> okay. Was, it was extremely hot. I just feel like it only got way worse once we actually got to Lyon. I remember get, arriving in Lyon on the train, getting to my Airbnb, realizing it did not have a fan or air conditioning and needing to like freeze a, tel- a t-shirt to put on so that way I did not like spontaneously combust. So... Yes, I've tried to block off most of the memories about the heat in France, but there's most there's it was very hot and yeah. they get better for the final, which is when Kara came back and <laughs> joined for all those fun festivities and right, yeah, I, I was going like to join was... actually. She was in France and ended up not being able to, but then she came back to the U.S. and we had the K Equity workshop, and then she and her family came to the first victory tour game. I mean, really, it was all very organic. It was like, hey, this is. This is fun. They're fans. Right. And they're they're also friends. And so I hope yeah. that I've let them help lead them down a good path of <laughs> investing. And I'm really thankful that they have. <laughs> right. Okay. I, the other part of this maybe also is, you know, talking about some of the alumni stuff that happens. There is kind of, I want to look at another part of the ecosystem, which is maybe keeping other players still in the game right? Long term, you know, obviously, there are a number of players on kind of like my side of things, right? Quote, unquote, like Foudy is over here on conference calls with me somehow getting her name mispronounced by conference call operators, which cracks me up whenever it actually does happen. But, you know, talking about coaching, right? Coaching being a huge attraction for players that are actually playing like, how do we keep maybe players in the game, like what is what is the importance of keeping players in the game, whether it's coaching, whether some of them are owners for LA, right? Like there is now a path to ownership, um, whether it's maybe like a GM or some sort of technical role. Like there, there is, in theory, this whole world of other roles within this game that we're not necessarily seeing a huge amount of players actually hit yet. Yes, and I think that's going to take time to address. And I am, ex- ex- I get personally very excited about that and look at even the Players Association and the roles that players can play within the same. The Players Association is some job training of sorts, but I think there's a way to formalize that. And that this long off season, I hope, provides for that. Um, there are sponsors, including some of the ones we've worked with, whether it's Luna or PNG and Secret, that we could hopefully bring on to help support some of these initiatives. But you have to create a pipeline. We need to give some practical work experience and actually give the opportunities. We all throw our, our arms up about no or very few women coaches in this league, but I think we also want to make sure that any woman that's stepping into a role is stepping into a role that, where they will be successful. And for players, that means that's a whole different job. That's a whole different career. So how do we set them up to, if they want to be a GM and I'm looking over in Europe and seeing some former players are getting some of those opportunities right now as sporting directors, what skill sets do you need to be able to step into that job? What kind of apprenticeship apprenticeship models can be set up? Marketing, branding, sponsorship sales. There are a number of roles that women and black and Latina and like, basically non-white, not me, and should play into in this ecosystem. And we have to be really intentional about how we're, we're doing that. I love, when we go back to LA, I love Julie Ehrman. Julie didn't know soccer. She came for her first soccer game when we were at that El Trafico game. And she is 
dove in, but she can draw on a ton of her own professional experience from the past and has become a student of soccer and all of this. And I think she will, she is, it's great to have her and Elise as, and Stephanie Lee as and Amanda Duffy um, within the team levels like of executives as women. And I'm looking forward to a day when we have more players that are in that role. And broadcast has been good. Bowdy and, and Allie and Wesley and team and Angela Heathley's and Daniel Slayton have all done great jobs in that. But there's a lot of other roles. And we just need to create those opportunities for players to step into them. Right. All right. So I think last big question for you is... So it's August. I could not actually tell you. I think it's the 19th. This is I, I'm pretty sure. It is what 19th. Com- My mom's okay, birthday, good. so I know it's the 19th. Oh, okay, good, good. All right, so what what comes next? Like, what is your kind of immediate to-do list? I'm guessing probably involves getting whatever we're, we're waiting on for the NWSL sorted, but where... What are the other bigger things, especially from like maybe a U.S. women's national team point of view that are on the way, especially I think everyone is kind of waiting to see, are we even going to be able to, you know, like the international friendly windows just kind of keep getting pushed and the calendar was kind of reset, right? So what's what's next for you? I think on the field, yes, it is immediate term, what's happening within the NWSL for the next couple months and for any players that are going abroad, what, what does that look like as transfer windows close? And for US and the national team, FIFA did update the calendar. There is still a November or an October and November window. Right now, the Olympics are still on the books. Obviously, there's just a ton of uncertainty. So this is just endless scenario planning right now for on the field and trying to make sure that players can continue to do their job in a way that is healthy or safe for them. And both from a physical standpoint and mentally mental health standpoint. So that's what we've been doing a lot of work around and it takes a ton of capacity. And then I think next off the field is we still have a number of initiatives happening with times up. I think some of what we discussed about off season education programming for players will be some things that we're working on. And then CBA negotiations are on the horizon. Our CBA expires at the end of 2021. So no shortage and work to do. <laughs> no days off, right? No like. days off. Actually, no. I believe very strongly in days off. Yeah. Taking them, so good, I hope you are too. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, know. I, keep, I keep trying to take vacation and then I work through it. But then, it, you know, it just kind of gets pushed back. But in theory, you know, once, once we're actually into, I guess, what should have been actual off-season, things might calm down. We'll see. I mean... I feel like there is always always something brewing and always something on the horizon for women's soccer. So there is. And <laughs> I I feel like mostly everybody should be optimistic and you should be excited about the future. There's I am not worried about players going abroad right now. Like if we are going to continue to have a great league here and I'm excited to see what that turns out being. All right. Um, do you want to tell the folks who are listening how to perhaps follow the U.S. Women's National Team PA uh, across the internet and and where they should where yes, they should yeah, send their the direction? Mission of <laughs> this is my least competent area of the job <laughs> of managing social accounts, but you at USWT players on Instagram and Twitter. My social media presence personally is pretty much zero, but 
I'm at Becca. Yeah, I feel like I saw you tweet like last week and I was like, oh, Becca was. (laughs) I was like, that's weird. (laughs) I'm doing anything. It's mostly going to be around my own personal political beliefs. So that is where I'll my the only place I'll really show up on social media footprint. Right. All right. Well, thank you for taking the time. Uh, I'm glad that we we packed in some some extra time. I think we both knew that we wanted to get through a lot of stuff today. But I think it's also just really good to to take a step back sometimes, especially like we are now in this kind of post challenge cup uh, post in theory, what should have been the Olympics world and try to get a better sense of of where we're at and where we're going. May I have loved this conversation. Always good to chat. Thanks for having me. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you again to Becca for taking the time today. When we originally scheduled this recording session, we'd only set it for 30 minutes. And then we both very much realized that this was going to be uh, a conversation with a long list of topics. So I do appreciate the extra effort that she put in to make sure our discussion could be as thorough as we both wanted it to be. One more thing for you. Next week, I'll have on another athletic coworker and host of the lead, Kavitha Davidson, along with Jessica Luther. They have a new book dropping September 1st called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. I'm actually reading it right now. They sent me an advanced reader's copy uh, ahead of the episode. So they're going to come on, talk about this book. It's so timely and it's so good in how it addresses what they call the dilemmas of the modern fan. The book touches on a lot more than just women's sports. I mean, football, doping, really, you name it. This book is going to help you get through some of the moral dilemmas that you might face while trying to consume sports in a responsible human fashion. Obviously, that is very different in the age of COVID-19. But I do want to get it on your radar since you can pre-order that now. Don't forget to support your local indie bookstore when you order. That's it for this week's episode of Full Time with Meg Linehan. As always, you can subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places, Apple, Spotify, The Athletic itself. Your ratings and reviews on Apple help us find new listeners and also help us spread the gospel of women's soccer. You can always take 40% off a new annual subscription to The Athletic by signing up at theathletic.com slash full time. All of my coverage is always on the site and app and you can have one stop shopping for all of your women's soccer needs and articles and this podcast. And you can also find me on Twitter at it's Meg Linehan. Our podcast producer is Michael Zimmerman from The Athletic. I'm Meg Linehan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.